I feel like half of what we do is just to help these other companies make the time and space to think about a more distant future than they usually have time to think about and to get that space to be more radically creative with their own businesses. It can be so hard to think creatively about the future when we have so much that we need to accomplish literally tomorrow and absolutely in the present, the next week, the next month. And we have to fight to maintain the space for creativity every single day. Welcome to the IDOU Creative Confidence Podcast, a series focused on building your confidence at work to tackle your biggest creative challenges. Join us as we learn insights and lessons straight from IDEO and today's most impact-oriented design thinking leaders. Hi, I'm Suzanne Gibbs-Howard. And I'm Kalita Stafford. Welcome to a special episode of the Creative Confidence Series podcast. Today, we're prototyping a different format that we're fondly calling Office Hours. The fact is, Cohen, I get so many questions from the IDOU community about the specific challenges that you're facing as you try to bring more creativity into your work and your organization. And we just don't have time necessarily to answer them all. And so in this format, we wanted to take some time and just simply answer questions as best we can. Plus, we'll talk about why creativity matters in the workplace and how to cultivate it in yourself and in your team. So yes, office hours, because we love when you send us your questions. And Suze and I just can't spend enough time together, right, Suze? <laughs> That's true. Um, because we love learning from you. At the same time, we like to share what we're learning. We often are listening to and he- love to hear what are the stories that, as you are trying to take these lessons back into your work, what's working, what's not. Because here's the truth. Suze, you, you and I appreciate how important creativity is, right? Absolutely. Yes, yes. But we also know there's what? A lot of challenges. It's so hard to stay creative in your work all the time. And so this is an effort for us to help share stories about how we can all keep manifesting creativity at work. So we reached out to our community and asked people to share with us what challenges they're facing. We have an amazing community of learners who span the globe, and it's invaluable for us to stay in touch, to hear what's working, what isn't, and to see how they connect with each other and support each other. Alrighty, let's dive in. You ready, Suze? I am ready. All right. We have a question from Ali from Dubai, and he works with a traditional analytics-led organization and wants to know, how do I make the case, especially to upper management, for why creativity is so important right now? So one of the things that I look at a lot is the fact that technology and automation are rising really fast in our lives and in the workforce. And so a lot of people are out there being concerned about staying relevant in the modern world. So much of the energy and education is going toward STEM skills, science, technology, engineering, and math. And all of those are extraordinarily important. But there are other really fascinating studies that are showing that creativity and creative problem solving are also skill sets and mindsets that we need to pay incredible amounts of attention to. Yeah. So there's a recent study by the McKinsey Global Institute just this year, in July of 2018, where they were talking about the fact that as automation rises, we also need creative leaders who can bring the augmented and artificial intelligence together with human intelligence. That creativity and that creative problem solving are uniquely human values, 
and a skill that's going to stay in demand in our workforce. It's a kind of behavior that one day will get more replaced by algorithms and automation, but it's not going to happen as quickly as other parts of the human behaviors in our workforce. So learning how to flex your creative muscle now is a great way to prepare for the future. We also see that leadership is beginning to recognize the importance of creativity, too. In a survey done in 2010 by IBM, they surveyed over 1,500 CEOs. And these CEOs were thinking about how they were planning to support innovation in a world of incredible complexity. And nearly 60% of those CEOs cited creativity as the most important leadership quality that they were looking for. It meant that people were more willing to innovate with new business models and more comfortable navigating the incredible ambiguity that we all face in the workforce today. And I love that you bring this up because it's, it's not just a nice to have, it's not a soft skill. There's a business case for it. And let's, let's, di- let's dig into that a little bit more. The ability to be creative feels great. Obviously, that's, that's important. But how it connects to innovation, the business case for it, is, is a real key for why this is a, a, an important skill. So on one hand, creativity is a tool. It's a process and a mindset to come up with new and novel ideas. It draws upon mindsets that we practice every day. Optimism, curiosity, one of your superpowers, empathy, Sue's. One of my strengths, adaptability. Absolutely. And it's it's how that it's how we are able to think about challenges in new ways. Because boy, we all have challenges every day, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, if that's creativity, innovation is the outcome of putting together effective processes and and enabling those creative ideas to then be acted upon. The reality is, you need both. You need both to bring both useful and beautiful products and services to the market and ones that will meet real human needs. And when we talk about creativity, that is particularly what we're talking about, the human-centered ability to solve problems in ways that meet human needs. As we like to say it, the best way to prepare for change or to future-proof yourself, your team, your organization is to embrace creativity as part of an essential skill set within the innovation process. So we said a lot, but the reality is it's tough. Yeah, all that said, it is just so tough to change ingrained ways of thinking at work. Understandably, people like to rely on processes. They like to go back to steps that they know have worked in the past, and they want to follow those things through again and again. It's hard to constantly deal with the incredible pace of change that we're all working with. And so combined, together, Co and I have over 25 years of experience at IDEO leading creative work, and we've both worked in startups and other organizations as well. And we have to fight to maintain the space for creativity every single day. And we don't say this because I wouldn't say we have this solved. We don't say it because we know all the answers. We say it because we recognize how challenging this is, but that there are ways forward. So one thing I noticed in myself, I will start to get very tactical in meetings or when there's a lot of things to get done, I'll get very serious and tactical and I'll, I'll squeeze out some of the space for the team to be creative. And so one of the things we started noticing on our team is if we would just take the time to start each meeting or take moments in meetings to do a quick creative exercise, it dramatically affected our ability to be more open with each other to have more trust, to be more present. And it's a simple thing, but all of those things are the conditions 
that then allow our team to be more creative with each other. So one of the things that we're always working on at IDOU is finding tips and tricks so that we can keep creativity alive and more of that thinking about the distant future in our own business. So one of the things we've done is that on our roadmap and all of the work streams that we need to accomplish in any given quarter, we always make sure to have at least one piece of the program that's focused on things that allow us to be more radically creative within our own business. So for example, last year, to make room for creativity, we set aside the time to plan and we mapped out a 2022 vision for learning. And in this, those few extra years were just far enough out into the future that we felt that we were relieved of thinking about the constraints of today and tomorrow. And that was one of the things that helped our team to be more creative. Absolutely. Next up, we have a question from Crystal in France. She says her team is very creative in warm-up exercises and challenges outside of their business, but it's difficult for her to get clients or colleagues to think outside the box, especially when reflecting on their own business. So I'm guessing, Suze, you might have some some good strategies for Christelle to think about. Absolutely. No, that is such a common challenge. We've both seen that when working with tons of different clients and partners at IDEO. They really want to be creative and open-minded, but it's just so hard to change when you're thinking about your own business. I mean, we feel that every day in our it. own business. You're just too close to it, and you've got this ingrained way of working, and the, the pressures are, are too heavy. So the first thing that I would suggest to Crystal is to give her clients and her colleagues a new perspective through an analogous experience. I mean, this is just a trick that never stops working. Um, just to share a little bit about why I think it's a great way when you're in an analogous experience for clients to feel what it's like for their end users or key customers. Um, also, when you do an analogous experience, you can design something that allows you to bring a larger group through this parallel world. And then they can literally feel these experiences. And sometimes when you have it in your heart and viscerally in your own body, it's much more transformative and motivating than just observing a patient or a customer or another end user. So do you have an example? Yeah. Do you have a story? I think it, this example is literally one of my favorites. It's a project that we were working on with a hospital and it was improving patient experience. And as often happens in a hospital, there's so much expertise and so much knowledge with the doctors, the nurses, the administrators. I mean, they know what they are doing. And patients at the same time were reporting that they were feeling really stressed and confused when they came in. And the challenge was that the hospital leaders just couldn't grasp any ways that they could change the experience. They thought, you know, this is the way it's done in a hospital, and they just couldn't innovate ways to do it differently. And so our designers had this moment where they noticed that at the hospital, there was little separation between something that we often call like front of stage and back of stage or front of house and back of house. When you have a theater experience, you have a very clear front of stage, and there's a lot of other stuff going on in the background. In a hospital, there's no curtain creating that separation. So they started to talk about that if the facility, the hospital was a restaurant, it would have been like the customers at the restaurant were literally eating inside of the kitchen, sitting next to the chef and the sous chefs and the cleaning crew and the bus boys and bus girls. And so what we decided to do was we took this analogous experience that was for hospital leadership and we said, let's have them dine 
inside of a restaurant, but literally sitting in the kitchen, like behind the curtain. And so we set up this experience. We had actors and actresses come in and create this nightmarishly bad dining experience. And we invited our clients to a dinner. It was amazing. The diners were forced to wear like these really uncomfortable, unflattering bibs as they were eating. The waiters, the actors were were treating the guests really brusquely. Like food came and went. There was no explanation. There was no understanding or comprehension of what things were. They would rip it away before they were done eating. And then there were like long periods of unexplained waiting in uncomfortable almost unsafe feeling situations. One of my favorite details was that they had this chair that had toxic, something toxic looking on it. And even a sign saying, don't sit here. And they would say, please have a seat right here. And so it was just this amazing analogous dining experience. But what happened was as the entire group of, of hospital leadership came through and then debriefed, they had these amazingly rich, visceral and emotional insights about things like clarity of explanation, uncomfortable wait times. And then this catalyzed them so much faster than it would have been if they had just read some report or seen some pictures of people going through this experience. They really quickly prototyped something and moved an important key aspect of that hospital experience forward incredibly quickly. So and I love this story. And let's let's break it down a bit, though. So you're thinking, you're probably thinking, so what? I mean, that sounded like a perfect, wonderful story and sounded maybe it was easy to do. Maybe not. But why is this so important in helping people not go back to their same safe ideas or their usual ways of thinking yes. for their own business? Mm -hmm. And you, you touched on it. It's helpful because it's emotional. Yeah. It's not just informative. So it stuck with them. It was visceral. And it almost sounded a little exaggerated. But that's actually a little bit of the point, too, because you're we're trying to activate the heart as well as the head. Absolutely. Um, I like to, the reason why analogous is valuable, because in this case, it's close enough to their business that they could see the connections, yet far enough away that it offered a new lens on a familiar problems. They weren't talking about a nurse rotation. They were talking about a sous chef speaking with the head chef. Close enough that they could see it, but far enough away that they could imagine something different. So let's, how would you apply this to your own business? So here's a couple tips for how you can think about an analogous experience for your team or your industry. First, you identify the human need you're trying to solve for. So for example, the hospital, they needed people to coordinate tasks and activities, often in moments that were very high stakes with a lot of handoffs and trust. And notice I didn't, I didn't say identify the needs of your industry. So in this case, it wasn't about a need in healthcare. So second, you're going to brainstorm analogous scenarios that have a similar challenge. What other places in the, in the world do you see where there's a lot of people coordinating tasks and activities? Restaurants, air traffic control, getting luggage. I mean, you can just see it goes to a lot of different places. How do those industries solve for that problem? And as, you'll, as you start to look for how they do it, you'll see interesting connections you can learn for learn from in ways that have longevity for your team or your business. You'll see, it will help you see familiar or well-known problems, but with just a hint of fresh eyes. Another one, I'll open up this one. Another tool you can use to spark creativity in a team, especially one that's familiar with your own kind of problems or ways of thinking, is to really embrace divergent and convergent thinking. What does that mean? 
Divergent thinking is all about generating options, such as going wide with brainstorm ideas. On the other hand, convergent thinking is all about narrowing and deciding in order to focus. Now, here's the trick. You need both of these mindsets all along the process. Suze, you and I have seen this so many times. Mm -hmm. Too often, a team will have one divergent moment, maybe at the beginning of a project or when there's new stakeholders, and you go wide and it feels wonderful, and then the rest of the process for weeks or months, it's only convergence. It's it's narrowing, and it makes sense because there are deadlines and there's milestones you have to hit. Yeah, people just get stressed, and so they have that one idea, and they just want to deliver on that instead of being willing to diverge at certain points again. Yeah, and it's not about diverging as extensively each time, but rather think about embracing cycles of divergence and convergence throughout a project life cycle. Here's what I mean. So for, for divergent moments, tune in to when a team feels stuck or when everyone is disagreeing on what the path should be. Those are clues that you need to create space and have a moment for the team to diverge, to consider alternatives. Uh, this can be great, too, for when teams are reverting back to safe ideas. One thing you can do is kick off a brainstorm and intentionally make it very provocative. Use prompts like, how might our competitors do this? Or what are some ideas that might get us fired? And I know that sounds scary, but the whole point is you want to, A, encourage people to share ideas and including and get to some wild ones. Now, on the other hand, when it's time to converge and think and refine ideas, usually the things that drive that phase are budget and constraints. We have to get this done in this amount of money. One thing we think about, too, is a voting system that, A, honors those realities, vote on the couple things that are plausible with some of the constraints you're working with, but also vote on the one or two wild ideas that feel risky but are still valuable to consider. You have to create enough space for some of those ideas to still live and breathe while acknowledging, yes, there are constraints that you have to work within. I think one more thing on all of these moments of diverging and converging is just time boxing them. If you say for this next half hour, we're going to diverge or we're going to make decisions about priorities in the next 60 minutes, just adding that deadline to the space somehow helps people feel safer in making some of those different kinds of mental decisions. So thank you, Crystal, for that question. I hope these tools will be useful to you and others as well. Next up, we have a question from Brigitte, a design thinking coach and service designer in Germany. She says she encounters pushback when trying to bring creative ways of thinking to people, especially those who might be proud to have a solution for every problem. She says, once I get them on board with exploring new ideas, the excitement often rubs off in a few days and they revert back to their old way of doing things. She asks, how might we help people overcome inertia to try new approaches? This is a great question, and we see this often that introducing a new creative way of thinking is well-received or well-intentioned, but it's hard to make it a consistent habit. Yes, this is something I think so many of us can relate to. There are a few different ways to think about this challenge. First, you can think about the experience you have, and often people go to a conference room or an off-site workshop, and then they come back to their office where everything is the same. And it's so easy to fall back into old patterns when you're in the same environment that you usually work in. Your behaviors just rock back into that natural position. 
So the first thing you could do is to find ways to keep new insights alive when you return to your old workspace. One of my favorite techniques is to create artifacts that represent this new way of thinking. So a lot of time that might be the customer and a new way of thinking about and understanding your customers. Sometimes they're personas or archetypes. And so you can think about a way that you can represent your customers and the real people that they are around you in your physical space. So once on a project about women and contraception, our team made these little stands that helped to bring some of the young women into our physical workspace with us. It explained their mindsets. It had some quotes from them. It had other brands and services that they used. And it even had a vision of a bag that they carried with them every day and the kinds of things that were important to them. So I think bringing back archetypes and personas is, is a classic way to keep new ideas and new ways of working alive. I think one last thing that is... I think just such a creative and classic space to put reminders is in the bathroom. So I remember being at Intel <laughs> many, many years ago, and I was there for a conference on human-centered design. And I remember that the team literally had posters of the personas that they were designing for. Of course, they were like advanced tech people, and they were just on the back of the bathroom door in the stall. And so, I mean, you've got a captive audience. People are just going to go in there, and it's often a place where people are taking a little break and a little breath, and they come back to their work re-centered in a new way of thinking. I love that one. I have I have a memory, too, of working on a kids' app project, and the team working on that had a focus group where they had the kids come in, and they did tracings of the kids' outline on the white on the the white wall next to the project space, and we left those tracings there. Nice. So we had we had the the visual shadows of the kids, and they also had created an iPhone that was in the uh, ratio of the kids' hands, so it was a little bit larger. Uh -huh. And so each time they were making decisions about this experience for kids, they a had that image of these shadows of kids who had been there, and this this oversized artifact that to the kids felt felt, well, to us as adults, felt huge. But to the kids, that's how it felt. So yeah. it was just ways to remember each in each moment how it feels. Yeah, just like triggers to yep. help people remember those new ways of thinking or behaviors that they want to keep yep. in their work. So I have another one. Another way to keep momentum going after a really great moment, like a workshop. We talk about this all the time. Building rituals. We love rituals. We love rituals. So what are these? These are the routines that you can do on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis that start to nudge your team into doing the behaviors or mindsets that you're trying to create more of within your team. You can start simple. You can start with micro moments. So these can be small actions that build over time but have a large impact. So one that I know we both consciously uh, practice is whenever you encounter a new challenge or something that triggers a fear in you, I think the natural response for all of us is to do uh, close down or get scared. Clinch up. Clinch up. That's what we often <laughs> talk about, clinching. <laughs> so one micro behavior is flip that fear, recognize it, and flip it into curiosity. Um, fear is usually a great indicator that there's growth possibilities right in front of you. So for example, instead of the customers aren't engaging with our new product line and then you get deflated, get curious, reframe it as a question. How might we understand the barriers customers face in trying our new product line? Um, it sounds simple, and you know what? It is. It encourages, it's going to encourage collaboration. It encourages you to feel less def less deflated and more curious about, well, what 
is causing this friction and what might I do about it? You could also ladder this up to team-wide rituals or org-level rituals, things that help keep the momentum going. For example, what if you use the last 15 minutes of a weekly meeting and have people take turns sharing a customer story from that week? We do that in our weekly stand-up, and I have to say it's always the most inspiring moment just to kick off our, our week well on a Monday morning. Yep. One last thing I suggest for Begeet, and Suze, I'll need your help with this word, is to use the accountability buddy system. We love accountability buddies. Suze and I do this. <laughs> <laughs> this is the idea of pairing up with a coworker who will be accountable with you and for each other for achieving goals or making progress on a, a creative effort. So like one of the things that you and I do is we have our weekly drum beats, but we always try to put on our agenda a creative thing or here's something future forward we need to keep an eye on. So it's not only all the things that are coming at us at that moment, but we're intentionally being mindful of bigger things. Yeah, it might be like meeting with some people that you don't have an urgent need to meet with them right now, but they're super inspiring and you need to make time for that. How are we holding each other accountable for doing those things that are good for the long term for ourselves? Yeah. And if we didn't do this, I think all of us, if we didn't do that, all of us have this idea of, oh, I know I should do that. Or somebody else will, somebody else will do it. And then nobody takes ownership. An accountability buddy is one of the ways that you can surface. Here's some of the things I'm working on and have a colleague, a safe colleague, hold you accountable. For our next question, Armand, a head of innovation, brings up the challenge of getting creative when there are strong budget and time constraints. He says most of his stakeholders demand he works on a fixed price and scope basis, so his team is pushed to eliminate uncertainty so they can meet those constraints. But on the other hand, during a project, he often asks his team to be creative, which introduces uncertainty into the mix. So his question is, how might we better estimate creative work in a way that stakeholders agree to spend for it? This is such a great question and one that we encounter often. I'm guessing you have some tips for us, Suze. Yeah, we've, we've worked on these together. I think an approach that I've used so many times is to actually create scope and budget and time for creativity by just giving those creative practices a more official name. So... Once you name something, it helps clients to understand the value of that creativity and see how it's going to play a role in the larger process. So let me, I'll give you an example. Once we were doing a retail design project a couple of years ago, and it was really natural for the stakeholders that we were working with to want to have us going back to back in formal interviews all day and night. And I can understand that. You want coverage. You want quantity. You want to make sure that you're... Yeah, you want the value for the time that you have this team out in the field um, talking to and spending time with customers. But one of the things that we knew was that we needed time for empathy experiences. We needed time to conduct observations. And those weren't necessarily times where we would have a formal person scheduled to be interviewing. And so instead, we wanted to create space for this creativity. So we called them inspiration tours. And the way that we made sure that they were really purposeful was that we designed them to become like a scavenger hunt. And so we would take a group of people out and we would spend a decent quantity of time, three, four hours, and people had direction to go 
on a scavenger hunt to observe a certain kind of behavior. And they had notebooks and they had goals that they were trying to achieve. They weren't just going shopping themselves. They were observing and trying to interact with shopping inspiration. And then that way, when people had completed their little scavenger hunt, they came back with insights on the specific challenges that we were trying to solve. One of the things I love about that story is because that's the paradox. Creativity, if you want to get to new places, you have to embrace some unknown and some risks. But what you're saying there is there are ways to design just enough creative risk-taking within a larger program. Because you do have to create space for the unknown. You do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's great when you can, when you know enough to create a method and call it something. I think other times we are definitely struggling to think about ways that we can have alignment around the outcome, but then possibilities to get us there. So I think when it comes to prototyping, this is another space where I know a lot of people have a lot of trouble creating room and bandwidth for a team to go into the unknown. And so a lot of times what we'll do, we were talking before about laps of divergence and convergence. And so sometimes what we'll say is that we just know that we need three rounds of diverging and converging. And we we know enough to say what's going to happen in those three rounds. So the first round of diverging and converging with prototypes might be early stage, really radical explorations. And so that point is just to explore and think about what might be. And then the second round where we're diverging and converging is a little bit different. We're thinking there about getting the right idea. And then the third round of diverging and converging is about getting the idea right. So it's radical exploration, getting the right idea, and then getting the idea right. And so each of those laps of diverging and converging for prototypes has a very different purpose. We don't know exactly what we're going to do. We don't know exactly how many prototypes are going out, but it leaves room for the team to move through and scope out the process and the time that they need. Another way that we think about prototypes, the purpose of those prototypes might be initially just what a prototype needs to feel like. The second lap of prototyping might be what it needs to look like. And the third is what it needs to act like. And so if you can pull things apart and progressively tackle more specific problems, that's a way to make room for the team to be creative. I have another strategy to offer as well. Um, And this is one, this is the harsh reality too. As creative leaders, there isn't a a silver bullet to to be able to make this just happen. There's not a very specific way that you can do it that it's going to pay off every time. So part of what we all need to do as creative leaders is build up the way we speak about the value of creativity and build up the case studies for it. Yes. And this does take time. So one another approach is the idea of double delivery. So for example, it can be really difficult to get buy-in for ideas when you don't yet have proof that they'll add value. And so this is exactly what uh, the question was about. Well, if people don't see the value, then they just cut it from the work stream. Yeah. So to get that proof, sometimes you do have to go out on a limb and do the creative work you know will be the game changer, in addition to delivering on the core task. So we have a story, and Suze, you and I worked on this one together. Yeah, uh, We were working with a global online retail company, and the purpose was to surface customer insights so that the product and marketing teams could then use those in creating new offers, new features, new campaigns. This, this particular organization really valued quantitative data, and they wanted to focus only and mainly on quantitative data. But we knew that the stats alone 
divorced from stories and visuals about the real people or the why behind those statistical behaviors can be limiting, especially when the purpose of that data is to fuel new ideas. So while yes, the majority of work still focused on the quantitative analysis, we also gathered qualitative customer stories and ended up creating videos and visuals to humanize that data. And I remember we were kind of doing, we were out there doing the interviews and we just said, you know what, we just have an instinct that we need to capture a little bit more of this visually just in case. And so we just went ahead and we were doing that as well. Exactly. And so in the end, after the project ended, we were actually able to track what assets got used most internally because all of these assets were made to the, made available to the internal teams at this organization. And after the first year, you know this story, but yeah, Suze, what was the most commonly used asset? People would just barely skim across the data, but those video stories, they loved. They were heavily viewed. I can't quite remember how much it was like. So we know they were at least, they were accessed by new users or unique users at least twice as much as yeah. the data sets. And so not only are all of the people that, all the stakeholders from this organization, not only are they now advocates, but this becomes another story and a proof point that we then use when suggesting the value of qualitative or human stories as a complement to data-rich programs. But it's not obvious at first. Yeah, yeah. I think another way that we often get around budget constraints or the limits of another organization wanting to know exactly what we're going to do to get to the outcomes. It's just not possible when you're trying to innovate and you need to be creative. And so what we often do is we have a clear conversation at the beginning of a project about what the outcomes are that are most valuable and how you want to measure the success of the project. There's a, a adage all the time in the world where people talk about, do you want it cheap, fast, or good? Pick two. You know, you can't have cheap, fast, and good all at the same time. And so you want to know, what's your project anchor? What's going to be the one that's most important? Is, is price really the thing that they need to anchor on? Is it about speed or timeliness? Or is it mostly about a super high quality experience that they need to go for? Recently, we had Jocelyn Wyatt, the CEO of IDEO.org, on the Creative Confidence series, and she shared a really elegant framework that she called the theory of change. And they do this inside of IDEO.org all the time. Um, when they're having a kickoff meeting with a project, and they have all of those stakeholders there at the very beginning, they hold this big, important conversation about the outcomes and they agree on the outcomes that they're shooting for, and they know what that highest priority goal is, but then they get the freedom to have a little bit more leeway on the methods and how they want to move things forward. And it also takes the pressure off of them. They say, these outcomes are the ultimate goal, but how we get there and the fact that we know we're going to fail with a couple of prototypes along the way, they get some freedom from those constraints. They get the ability to learn from some of their extreme ideas and to quickly pivot around any failures. And this conversation about centering on the outcomes in turn leads clients to trust the team and that the team together will find the right solution. So that's it for our office hours this week. We love hearing from our community and getting to hear your questions. We learn so much from understanding the questions you ask. And thank you for writing into us. 
Tune in to future Creative Confidence Series webcasts to hear from leaders in innovation, design thinking, and creativity, and continue to ask your questions with all of our guests. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creative Confidence from IDOU. Stay up to date on our Creative Confidence conversations and send your questions for our upcoming guests. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram and sign up for our IDOU newsletter at idou.com backslash cc. Thanks for joining us.